Dr. Guy. And this is Dr. John. Two brothers from other mothers, welcome to Diseases, Death, and Doctors. If this is your first time with the pod, this is a storytelling podcast that diagnoses and dissects the non-chronologic history of medicine, because it is easier that way. And who doesn't want their doctors cutting corners? Am I right? (laughs) So, today's episode was initially going to be a discussion of surgical pioneers. Basically, a golf clap, head nod to the people that leapt into the abyss of the unknown and did it first. More importantly, they did it successfully. Um, But that idea quickly morphed into something else instead of covering the deeds of the many. Our preliminary search quickly focused on our attention on the deeds of one. Uh, We quickly realized the surgeon's story deserved his own episode. And so with that said, today we are going to talk about the man, the myth, the legend of Dr. Daniel Hale Williams, a.k.a. the Moses of cardiac surgery. (laughs) I like it's very generous that you use the word we there. I think everybody knows by now that it's all you. You know what though? You've got you've got two episodes coming, and I'm really excited about it. I do. I've I've really been working a lot on prepping these episodes. A lot of research. (laughs) Feel working around the clock. But no, I'm just like really just like wakeboarding behind your uh, your speedboat. It's a slow boat, so unfortunately, you're probably just floundering in the water. I'm just (laughs) like waterboarded. (laughs) As long as that's clear. Um, But yes. So, have you ever heard of uh, Doctor Williams? I have not. I've heard the word Hale before, the last name Hale, but I don't know if that's associated with him or a different medical or surgical Hale. You know, oddly enough, there are a couple of references that actually had him listed as Dr. Hale, but the I would say 95% of them, it's Daniel Hale Williams, which is his name. So I'm not really sure how that was lost in did translation. He, did he also assassinate a president? I feel like those people always get three names. He, no, he did not. Okay. <laughs> he absolutely did not. <laughs> well, this is, this is going to be news to me. So I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. Oh, well, good. Allow me to titillate you then, Dr. John. <laughs> you can educate me. <laughs> my interest is piqued, but let's, let's keep that word out of here. All right. Some say tomato, I say tomato. Or titillate. Tomatolate? <laughs> Tomatolate. Um, so Dr. Williams is most well-known as one of the first surgeons to perform open-heart surgery successfully. But as you will find out, the rest of his story may be as, if not more, impressive. Uh, Daniel Hale Williams was born on January 18th in 1856. Great year. Uh, the fifth of six children uh, to Daniel Williams Jr., which should also tell you how impressive his story is, because if you are a junior junior, then I feel like you've got to overcome a lot to be successful. Dale Earnhardt Jr. Jr., one of my favorite bands. Names. Yep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, so uh, his dad, Daniel Williams Jr., and his mom, Sarah Price Williams of Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania. That sounds like a city in Pennsylvania. Hershey, Hollisdayburg. <laughs> all those Quakers just having too much fun up there. <laughs> Let's place make this place sound a lot more exciting than it really is. 
Um, his father's family, a racial mix of German immigrants, Native American and free blacks, um, and William's father uh, happened to die when he was very young, leaving his mother to care for him alone and his siblings. Uh, she was sufficiently overwhelmed and ultimately decided to send the young Williams to be an apprentice to a shoemaker in Baltimore when he was just 11 years old. I feel like it I can relate like- to this story already. Yeah, sounds like a great option. I'm overwhelmed. Shoemaker, shoemaker, take my, my child. My great grandfather was a shoemaker that immigrated from Italy to America, and I myself once lived in Baltimore, Maryland. See, overlapping stories. And this, I mean, this is really a story of you. <laughs> this, this is my origin story. It is not. I'm not this great of a man. So, um, I'm going to take the back seat for the rest of this episode and just read instead of getting in my own way. Um, So Williams tried several careers prior to discovering himself in medicine. He worked as an aforementioned shoemaker's apprentice and later as a barber. He then tinkered with law for a brief moment, but the discipline did not hold his interest. And ultimately, he would find himself drawn to medicine after a chance meeting led to an apprenticeship with Henry Palmer, a prominent local surgeon and civic leader in the state of Wisconsin. Connect the dots. Somehow Baltimore to Wisconsin. There's a journey there. We're not going to mention a lot of that. Um, details for another day. After two years under Palmer's tutelage, Williams entered the Chicago Medical College, um, and this would later become the Medical Department of Northwestern University in 1880 and then graduated in 1883. Williams would open his own practice in a well-to-do neighborhood in the south side of Chicago where both white and African-American families resided. At the time, though, Williams was one of only three black physicians in the surgeon or in the city. As he grew his practice, Williams taught and demonstrated anatomy at the Chicago Medical School and took a position as a surgeon for the city railway company with operating privileges at the Southside Dispensary. Now, it should be said, due to the times, the dispensary was not an established hospital and did not offer inpatient services. Unfortunately, despite his growing reputation as an exceptional surgeon, Williams' opportunities were initially limited, as none of the Chicago's or none of Chicago's established hospitals would grant a black surgeon privileges. This is despite the fact that his abilities were so obvious that in 1889, just six years into his career, he was appointed to the Illinois Board of Health. Not one to be detoured by minor inconveniences, Williams, with the help of local community leaders, conjured a game-changing solution. They began planning a new hospital, a hospital that would not... uh, be restricted to either race, one that would also train both black physicians and black nurses. It was a bold dream, but one the community and Williams firmly believed in. It's very impressive. Uh, the idea had merit, and not only would it offer training opportunities to black healthcare workers, but it would also provide much needed healthcare accessibility to all races as Chicago continued to boom. Williams won over African American pastors and lay leaders, and city businesses, both black and white-owned, pledged money to the project. White philanthropists donated, as did white churches and synagogues, and an important early contribution was made by Reverend Jenkins Jones, who secured a down payment from for the Armor Meat Packing Company for a uh, or three-story brick house on the corner of 29th Street in Dearborn. And even Frederick Drug- or Douglass, the famed American social reformer or abolitionist, Orator, writer, and statesman donated the proceeds of a lecture to the hospital's fund. This guy's a producer. 
He's really getting stuff done. Was he on as much cocaine as Halstead or less? Less. <laughs> less. <Okay>. less. <laughs> Which that's, is impressive. That's impressive. To get that yeah. <laughs> Did it all clean. <laughs> Maybe equally impressive to be a surgeon in this time and not be on cocaine. <laughs> yeah. Take that, Halstead. I know. <laughs> um, in January of 1891, the Articles of Incorporation were drawn up in the name of the Provident Hospital and Training School Association, with every donor as a member. An advisory board of white civic leaders and medical professionals was named, and the hospital trustees and executive and finance committees were composed of all black members. In May of 1891, the hospital would open its doors, and the living room of the three-story brick house would become the waiting room. A small bedroom at the end of the hall would serve as the surgery ward. Very condensed. I like that uh, he's doing a outpatient cardiothoracic surgery. <laughs> well, Didn't he was. <laughs> that's why. That's why he needed to d- open this hospital because now they could have inpatients. Before it all had, had quite, to be open, <laughs> hadn't quite made it onto the inpatient only list yet. Grant, granted, it is a small three-story brick house, like I said, with a back room used as the operating ward. They actually had bunk bed ORs, so you could really maximize the. <laughs> The production. Um, so Williams knew that any hospital or for any hospital to succeed, excellent clinicians were a necessity. Uh, the surgeon's priority was quality, regardless of race. And he recruited a staff of both black and white physicians, um, essentially making Provident the first interracial hospital. Um, Austin Curtis became Provident's first surgical trainee under Williams uh, later that year, and he would later become a professor of surgery at Howard University and chief surgeon at Freedman's Hospital. In its first year, the hospital trained seven nurses and treated approximately 100 patients. Now, Williams and his colleagues had a fully functioning hospital equipped with inpatient services and capable of managing more complicated surgical and medical problems, you know, like open heart surgery. Yeah, I'm still waiting for the open heart surgery piece of this. I mean, that's like the that's the nugget. We gotta you gotta build the foundation before you put the <laughs> the shingles on the roof. <laughs> Didn't like all do like the first successful cholecystectomy like ten years from now or something? His his uh, radical mastectomy. <laughs> Didn't he do the Coley's or is that how he died? No, no, no. He did. He was practicing on his, his mom. His mom. <laughs> I think you transfused his sister. Okay. <laughs> so now that we've set the stage for a groundbreaking surgery, let's get to the vista of our hike into William's surgical accomplishments. As told by Robert Dunn, author of The Man Who Touched His Own Heart. Oh, <laughs> what a title. I wonder what you'd name a, if somebody wrote a book after me, what they would name it. <laughs> uh, I could come up with a few, but may not be uh, appropriate for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So the year was 1893 and it was July. It was the summer of the world's fair, uh, which is a busy time in Chicago. I must say, because somewhere else in the city, H.H. Holmes, uh, a University of Michigan medical school graduate, was creating a name for himself as the first serial killer in the United States. <laughs> remember that from one of our first episodes. <laughs> <laughs> there was just so much uncharted uh, territory back then. <laughs> um, inventions from 
around the world would uh, be presented in Chicago and would soon begin to transform America. Uh, by fall, the first hamburger would arrive in Chicago. That's exciting. As would the first tiny version of Alexander Graham Bell's phone. But on this particular night... Real, real quick, you said the yeah. first ha- hamburger? Hamburger. Ham- like to eat. Yes. We know when the hamburger arrived in Chicago. In 19... <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying that's that's impressive. Okay, everything has an origin story there, Doctor. We'll get to that next episode. I don't know when the first hot dog arrived, but the hamburger was. Uh, we're pretty sure happened between 1893 and 1894. <laughs> I also don't know if it was a square or circular patty, or if it was oh. a. Sl- There's no telling. Yeah, yeah. What kind of bun was it on? My All right, we will. Uh, this will be in the bonus. <laughs> yeah. oh, the, the digression whirlpool begins as we circle the drain. Back to the story. On a particular night in July, uh, a 26-year-old expressman, basically a man charged with taking care of packages on trains by the name of James Cornish, had just gotten off work. It had been a brutally hot day, and work had been hot and frustrating. Cornish would have left the rail yard soaked in sweat, likely commiserating about the manner in which the heat had persisted into the evening. He needed a drink. It was the kind of heat that warranted a whiskey, which is exactly what Cornish went on to order that night within the familiar confines of his favorite watering hole. I have no idea how this author, Robert Dunn, got this much detail about this story. But <laughs> I thought you wrote this. Sorry. No. I was enjoying your artistic touch so much. <laughs> no, I'm taking no credit for this, but it's well done. So I mean, yeah. you'll see. You'll see. Yeah, There's yeah, going to yeah. be a golf clap kudos to be given. But he got his whiskey. He took a sip, cracked a flirty joke to the waitress. Of course he did. And walked over to play poker with two friends who were already seated. He felt lucky. A song called Daisy Bell was playing loudly from the jukebox. He bounced a little as he walked, eager to laugh, wager, needle his friends, and laugh some more. But then things changed irrevocably. Da-da-da. I feel like there's some artistic license taken here, but whatever. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The sounds around Cornish grew even louder. Noise rose like dust. A fight had started as they sometimes did in such environments. A chair was smashed over the bar and punches began to land against sweat-damp bodies. Cornish stood on his toes to watch, but suddenly he found himself within the oscillating scrum. A knife appeared, and the man with the knife lunged towards Cornish and stabbed him in the chest. The man pulled the knife back out, and the blade was covered. Aerial trail of blood soon followed. Someone screamed, and the crowd dispersed. The next sound that Cornish heard was that of sirens, as several women bent toward Cornish's body, which now lay heaped upon the ground. He got he got knifed, shanked right right, right, right in the, the chest. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be careful in those bar pub pub brawls. Yeah. Keep your head on a swivel. Uh. Um, so an hour or so later at Provident hospital, Cornish was laid out on a stretcher. His clothes were soaked with blood. He was wheeled into an operating room, the operating room. (laughs) Bro still alive an hour later. Strong work, Cornish. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, and there the nurses and Dr. Daniel Hale Williams gathered around him. 
Cornish's wound about an inch in diameter looked as though it might be superficial, but its location just to the left of the breastbone was worrisome. Dr. John, I'll give you a Scooby snack if you know why Williams might have been concerned with that location. <gasps> because that's where the heart lives. I know. I thought it was the brain, but then I did some research. You're right. It's the heart. <laughs> um, without x-rays, that's right. They weren't to be discovered until two years later in 1895. Don't damn you, 1893. <laughs> <laughs> you gave us the hamburger, but not the x-ray. <laughs> <sighs> There was no way of knowing how deep the wound might be or whether it had reached the heart. The only diagnostics available to Williams were clinical ones. Williams could feel Cornish's pulse. He could listen to his breathing, and maybe he could put a wooden stethoscope to Cornish's naked chest and listen for any atypical signs, which is impressive because at this point in my medical career, I don't even know how to use a real stethoscope, much less a wooden <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, nobody's going to hold that against you, given yeah. your uh, career choices. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think like, I mean, so you got like, uh, a chest trauma, penetrating wound, um, bro's still alive. So like, obviously it didn't completely sever like a coronary artery, didn't have a complete perforation, might've had a pericardial effusion at Mm -hmm. that point, but obviously not enough to cause tamponade. Otherwise, um, he would have also demised. Yeah, like all of these things, like dead, 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 dead. He didn't get a pneumothorax. Um, okay. All right, I'm following along. All right. Um, <clears throat> all right, so initially, apart from the hole in his chest, Cornish seemed okay. Tis but a flesh wound. His pulse was normal and steady. He seemed stable. The decision was made to cleanse the wound and close the stab. Stab wound. And after all, there weren't a lot of proven alternatives at the time. <laughs> so the so was cleaned up, sewn shut, and left to rest overnight. Cornish slept in one of the hospital's 12 rooms, uh, but it would not take long for his condition to drastically decline. And within hours, his condition, which had seemed stable initially, began to deteriorate. Dr. Williams was called back to his bedside. This time, when he put his ear to the man's chest, Cornish's heartbeat was weak. And then as Williams listened, it seemed to disappear entirely. That's never good. The heart was still beating, but only faintly. On July 10th, Dr. Daniel Hale Williams concluded that the knife must have penetrated more deeply than he initially thought, all the way into the heart, through the pericardium, i.e. the membrane enclosing the heart, consisting of an outer fibrous layer and an inner double layer of serous membrane for those medically lay listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, a knife to the heart can wreak havoc. <laughs> oh, just medical tidbits. A knife to the heart can wreak havoc. Oh, who would have thought? <laughs> of course, the sort of havoc depends on the details of where and how the knife enters. Now, the heart basically has two sets of pumps together, the left atrium and the left ventricle make up one with the right atrium and right ventricle the other. Each atrium, uh, which comes from the Latin term hall or court or gathering place, because that's where the blood gathers. That makes sense. Um, Anyway, each atrium sits atop its corresponding ventricle. When the left atrium contracts, it gently squeezes blood into the left ventricle. The blood does not need much assistance at this point because it's moving from an area of high pressure into one of low. Physics, y'all. 
The left ventricle then contracts with much greater force, sending the blood throughout the entire body, down the arteries to the arterioles, and then through the six <laughs> capillaries. Each tube, which is just a single cell layer wide, the force of the left ventricle's contraction would be sufficient to push water five feet up into the air, or as is the need in the body to push blood through more than 60,000 miles of blood vessels in the human body. I had no idea that's what it, who laid that out? I feel like I'm just like on the magic school bus right now. <laughs> Soaring through the atrium and the ventricle with you. 60,000 miles. At the same time that the left atrium and left ventricle contract, something similar happens in the right atrium and the right ventricle, except with less force because the blood leaving the right ventricle does not need to go through the whole body. It needs only to find its way to the lungs where the capillaries rest on 300 million air sacs. And within the blood's uh, red blood cells, hemoglobin, basically the body's Uber driver, um, there is the release of carbon dioxide, and then it picks up oxygen for circulation. The sounds of the heart, at least the most conspicuous sounds, are those of the valves between the atria and the ventricles, the mitral on the left, tricuspid on the right. I always remember I had to memorize, tri means right. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't want to get those confused. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, uh, closing when the ventricles contract and in doing so, preventing blood from flowing back, regurgitating back into the atria. And then more loudly, the valves between the ventricles and the arteries, the aortic on the left and pulmonary uh, valve on the right, closing once the ventricles have finished contracting, which prevents blood from flowing back into the ventricles. The loved up, loved up. The sound of the heart is the closing of these valves day in and day out, billions of times in a fortunate human life. So I don't ever want to hear anyone complain of being overworked because by golly, the heart works so darn hard. (laughs) So much depends upon the heart's pumps. The blood that is pumped out of the left ventricle travels into the aorta, which is basically a super highway from which blood is shunted off into the branches of the arms and the brain and the internal organs, the intestines, the liver, the kidneys, and to the legs and genitals. Gotta have (laughs) blood for them sexy times. Um, (laughs) Too (laughs) messant. Engorgement's a word that's used in medical textbooks. Um, Meanwhile, the right atrium and ventricle receive the blood that has come back in a different form than as it went out. Now the blood is depleted of oxygen and full of carbon dioxide. This used blood is pumped to the lungs. Sometimes I feel like I'm your used blood, Dr. John. (laughs) I don't know how to respond to that. But I also just love this uh, description here. It's great. so much. Yeah. Um, all right. So the used blood is pumped to the lungs via the pulmonary circulation. Pulmo comes from the Latin word lung and where blood cells in effect exhale carbon dioxide into oxygen. The oxygenated blood that blood then flows to the left atrium where the process begins anew again. Um, all this is happening within you right now, listeners. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Um, it happens in waves, contraction, relaxation. The contraction is referred to as systole, uh, the Greek word to pull together, the relaxation, diastole, the Greek for to separate. Um, 
hold your hand on your neck, you can feel in the expansion or relaxation of your carotid arteries, uh, which supply your brain with oxygenated blood, the consequences of your heart's pumping. So that I would say, as you kind of uh, alluded to earlier, is basically a mic drop of a cardiopulmonary physiology lesson. Wash that down with a glass of bourbon. And again, kudos to Robert Dunn for that. I take no credit. <laughs> Unless you miss the portion in which I give credit to Robert Dunn, and then I take all the credit. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> we'll just cut that part out. <laughs> um, so back to our story. When Dr. Williams left Cornish's pulse or sorry, when Dr. Williams felt Cornish's pulse, everything we just described was not as it should be. The knife had penetrated Cornish's heart, and now the cardiac machinery made weak and slow contractions, leading to a barely palpable pulse. A knife wound can result in more than one problem for the recipient. Reasonable. A, it can provide a new hole through which blood pours out of the body and onto the floor, or potentially into the body cavity, a closed space instead of into the arteries. Alternatively, i.e. B, it can also interrupt the ability of the heart to contract. Cornish's body was in shock, and with five other surgeons in attendance as observers, Dr. Williams was left with only one reasonable choice. He knew he needed to operate, or his patient would most certainly die. But there was no roadmap for what he was about to do. This was new surgical territory. He was blazing his own trail. Williams took the scalpel in his hand and he extended the stab wound toward the sternum on either side in the direction of the the border of the costal cartilage. The internal thoracic cavity, a.k.a. the internal mammary arteries, arteries that supply the breast and interior chest wall had been transected by the initial knife wound. Mm. The internal thoracic artery travels along the inner surface of the anterior chest wall on both sides. And in order to expose and ligate the vessels, which is fancy surgical speed for tie them off, tie them off. (laughs) Um, Williams removed a segment of the coastal cartilage. With the bleeding controlled, Williams found a one and one quarter inch laceration of the pericardium, as you alluded to as a possibility. Um, One and one quarters inch? This is... Not small. Not not small. Okay. (laughs) Um, No hemopericardium was present, and there was enough room to inspect the heart. Now, hemopericardium refers to the presence of blood within the pericardial cavity, i.e. sanguinous pericardial effusion. If enough blood enters the pericardial cavity, then a potentially fatal cardiac tamponade can occur, as you had noted earlier. Basically, the heart is compressed, suffocated, inhibiting its ability to contract. There was a laceration of the right ventricle near the right coronary artery. It's a game of inches, boys. Game of inches. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was not bleeding. He left it alone, probably a wise decision at the time, <laughs> um, and sutured the pericardium closed. Next, the chest wound was closed, and again, the patient's incision was cleansed, and he was taken back to his room for recovery. It is unknown how many cigarettes or bourbons Williams consumed after completing the surgery. I would assume at least one of each. And he's doing this all barehanded. Yeah. He might have had a hamburger, too. <laughs> it, it wasn't there yet. Yeah. This bro is doing this all just, just dirty hands. <laughs> I mean, so the patient's recovery 
was complicated by a two and a half liter plural effusion, which Williams drained three weeks after the original operation. Um, and again, for the medical lay, plural effusion is the buildup of fluid between the lungs and the tissue that surrounds them within the chest wall. This, as you can imagine, would make it difficult to breathe. So I'm confused. Um, amazingly. Yes. So why? So he didn't have a tamponade? He did what not. What was going on then? What, what was causing it then? I think he was had been bleeding. Um, and there was a, when he examined the wound, it was no longer bleeding. Um, but he, I think also he had, the thoracic arteries had been transected. So it was more just like he was bleeding, bleeding. internally he and like insanguinating and just kind of marinating. I mean, so it was like while. PA hemorrhagic shock kind right. of. Okay. All right. I can get that. Um, so wasn't, did did you say you penetrated the RV? Yes. So okay. penetrated the RV. It just wasn't like when he, by the time he examined it, he, he had missed, um, let's the see. Bleed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. He had missed the right coronary artery just by, you know, centimeters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And it had injured the ventricular wall, but it wasn't uh, at the, when he, by the time they actually assessed things, so several hours later, it, okay. the acute bleeding had stopped. Um, so amazingly, Mr. Cornish walked out of the hospital 51 days after the initial cardiac repair. Williams found him at work at the Union Stockyards two years later, and Cornish would go on to live another 20 years, which is also impressive in 1893. <laughs> <laughs> He wasn't hit by a train. No. <laughs> I mean, back then it was like, you better have 10 babies by the time you're 16 because yeah. <laughs> you've got one foot in the grave and another on a banana peel. So following the surgery, uh, Williams believed he had done something unprecedented, exploration of a cardiac stab wound and suture of the pericardial laceration, a.k.a. true open heart surgery. Um, after a search in the National Library of Medicine, he thought he established his priority, meaning in medical terms that he was the first dude to do it, the Neil Armstrong of cardiothoracic surgery. He reported his success in the medical record in 1897, but had missed an 1895 paper in the Annals of Surgery just two years before his, which reported repair of a par pericardium done in 1891 by the surgeon Henry Dalton. Now, this by no means takes away from William's accomplishment. Let's remember it was 1890 and there was no internet. Um, so <laughs> he even, wasn't watching a YouTube video of it while he was doing it. So even though our protagonist wasn't the first, when he was leaning over Cornish's dying body, he had no idea that such a surgery could be successfully or successful uh, if attempted. And most, if not all of his colleagues had never heard of such a thing. And just to give you an idea about how insane a successful open heart surgery was in 1893, even though he didn't have to put a suture in the heart, just closing the pericardium, let's review the state of the world and healthcare in the late 19th century. This is always my favorite part of these episodes. So <laughs> the germ theory, i.e. the understanding that small microorganisms called germs were the cause of illness and infection, uh, was first introduced in 1859 by the French chemist Louis Pasteur but was not proven until Joseph Lister between 1867 and 1877. But even then, the germ theory and the fact that germs actually exist wasn't universally accepted until the 1890s, i.e. four years before William's landmark surgery. 
uh, people essentially still thought that foul smells caused disease. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how how young our current medicine is. So people should be a little more patient with this whole COVID-19 thing. <laughs> Um, it took us a good, <laughs> it took us a while to figure out that bad smells don't make you sick. <laughs> uh, it took us a couple thousand years of human existence. Yeah. Uh, so washing your hands before plunging them into another human body. Well, that was for sissies back then. Medical or surgical gloves weren't even invented until 1894 when our friend William Halstead, surgeon in chief and lead cocaine aficionado <laughs> to Johns Hopkins Hospital uh, had them developed to keep the hands of his nurse, one that would become his wife, as we previously stated, protected from dermatitis associated with the frequent hand washing that suddenly became in vogue for surgery. Um, Alexander Fleming wouldn't discover penicillin for um, the first true antibiotic until 1928 meaning it was another 30 years before you could truly treat an infection or maybe prevent one with a surgery. Um, <laughs> and all doctors had in the 1890s was basically cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> Coke was basically the wonder drug of the time. Headache, take some cocaine. Nausea, take some cocaine. Sinus infection, Cocaine, of course, just pain, cocaine. In the words of R. Kelly, toot, toot, you guessed it, cocaine. <laughs> you could buy a box of Allen's cocaine tablets for 50 cents, a box, and a bottle of Coca-Cola for a nickel. <laughs> Which also had cocaine in it. And, and, and laudanum if you were <laughs> feeling swoony. Um so as you can see, medicine and science had some room to grow when Williams was making history in Chicago. Um, now, the first successful surgery on the heart itself, not just the pericardium, was performed by the Norwegian surgeon Axel Kapellian on September 4th in 1895 in Oslo. And the first successful surgery of the heart performed without any complications, which must mean that... <laughs> <laughs> Um, was by Dr. Ludwig Ron of Frankfurt, Germany, who repaired a stab wound to the right ventricle on September 7th, 1896. Despite these steady improvements in outcomes and morbidity, heart surgery was not widely accepted in the field of medical science until World War II, when surgeons were forced to improve their methods of surgery to repair the plethora of severe combat-related cardiac traumas. William's accomplishment, really um, all of his accomplishments, would not go unrecognized. While he was reluctant to leave the 12-bed Provident Hospital he helped erect in 1893, he was named Professor of Surgery at Howard University and Surgeon-in-Chief at Freedman's Hospital, a 220-bed facility for African Americans in Washington, D.C., he was recommended for the position by leadership uh, the leadership of the Chicago medical community and by Walter Q. Gresham, Secretary of, Secretary of State under Grover Cleveland's administration. Um, when he arrived, the hospital had no formal departmental organization. He recognized the hospital or he reorganized the hospital into seven departments: medicine, surgery, gynecology, obstetrics, dermatology. Can't believe they get a whole department. Um, urology and respiratory, and he added departments of pathology and bacteriology. And he wasn't merely a quote-unquote bean counter 
aka an administrator. He continued to practice surgery and he operated anywhere in the body and had spectacular surgical successes that added to his reputation. At the end of his first year, he had only eight deaths out of the 533 operations he performed, which is a mortality rate of only 1.5%. While Freedmen's began training African-American surgeons, Williams believed that the black community did not entirely accept the professional ability of black physicians and surgeons. His solution was controversial, but he recommended and began <coughs> facilitating public operations every Sunday afternoon. <laughs> yes, bringing them back. <laughs> that's right. The public was welcome to observe the operation or operations at Freedman's Hospital um, that were conducted by a black surgeon and staff. The patient's identity was for the most part hidden. Um, <laughs> it was a plan, however, that would build the community's confidence in the hospital staff and trainees. Williams would also pay a large role in the fight for inclusion of African-American physicians in the country's medical medical, good Lord, in the country's many medical societies. This would be an important step for him and all his colleagues, as it would provide them with a forum to present their surgeries, research and clinical questions. In 1895, he co-founded the National Medical Association for African-American Doctors, and in 1913, Williams was elected as the only African-American charter member of the American College of Surgeons. Williams would live until 1931, and he would die of a stroke after a well-documented and brilliant career. Hmm. There you go. That's the end of yet another episode of Disease, Death, and Doctors. <laughs> well, thank you. That was enlightening. And I'm glad that he didn't die at the hands of his trainees like Halstead did. <laughs> <laughs> um, you that. <laughs> he's like, I'm just going to have a stroke. Oh, that seems safer. Um, yeah, so he sounds like a badass. Also, uh, just a real quick brief shout out to this uh, bro Cornish who <laughs> survived getting stabbed in the heart and operated on before germ theory was widely accepted <laughs> with no antibiotics and no medications. And his reward was going back to the rail yards for another 20 <laughs> years of hard ass labor. <laughs> Yeah, but that, this is an amazing story. I legit had never heard this one before. No, it, I hadn't either. I mean, honestly, I think when I initially found this, I was, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I was trying to, thought I would do an episode on kind of medical firsts, uh, kind of the pioneers of different things. And I uh, did a search for the first uh, open heart surgery and uh, Dr. Williams popped up um, and <clears throat> I very, very impressive story, without a doubt. Maybe one of the most impressive, um, considering the the times in which he uh, developed his surgical skills um, and worked, considering yeah. both the limitations uh, in society and our lack of medical understanding. <laughs> there, were, there were more than a couple things standing in his way, <laughs> medically and uh, societally. Yeah. Um, to well, say yeah. the least. Uh, also, again, just want to reiterate a special thanks to Alicia Jefferson and Tamara McKenzie. Uh, they were the authors of Daniel Hale Williams, um, MD, uh, quote, a Moses in the profession, unquote, and uh, the aforementioned uh, Robert Dunn, author of, quote, man who touched his own heart, unquote, again. Uh, they provided a lot of the historical content in this episode. Shout out for that source material. 
Thanks again, Dr. Guy. And uh, thank you listeners for tuning in for another thrilling Shot to the Heart episode. Uh-huh.